Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And we will open up this morning that you have given to us to speak to our lives. Lord, to give us instruction and wisdom. Lord, in a world that seeks so much after truth and knowledge and direction. Uh, Father, we are so thankful that you have given us your word as that true source of wisdom. Help us this morning to listen attentively to your word. God, that we may apply it to our hearts. Lord, that we may be changed by your word this morning to become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, we desire, Lord, not to just be hearers of the word, but doers as well. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Matthew chapter 18 is where we find ourselves this morning. Matthew chapter 18. Now this morning we're looking at a text um, that is perhaps a difficult text, not so much in the explanation uh, of the text, but in the application uh, of this text. Um, It's interesting that you will find that in the history of the church, of the Christian church, that this, uh, what we find in this passage was once a very well-documented and practiced uh, discipline inside of the church, but over the last, say, uh, hundred years has become perhaps one of the most abandoned principles and teachings and practices inside of the Christian church. Matthew chapter 18, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 20. If you found your way there, let's stand together as we read this text. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst." And you can be seated. Now, over the past several weeks, Pastor Ben has walked us through the beginning of this chapter and talking about stumbling blocks and offenses and how we should seek as believers to not be a stumbling block, to not be an offense, to not sin uh, and cause someone else to stumble uh, in their walk with Christ. But what we find here now is Jesus turning the paradigm around and telling us how then we are to respond when someone sins against us, uh, sins against us as an individual or even sins against the corporate body of the church through the attitude or through the life that they are living. And I said at the beginning in my introduction that this is perhaps one of the most neglected things that we find in the church today. And if you go back, if you had a church, our church has uh, only been in existence for around 100 years. Uh, but there are other churches in Haywood County that have been around for much longer. And you go to larger uh, metropolitan cities, you have churches that have been around in the United States for a couple of hundred years. And if you were to go back and search through the records of their business meetings and their things in the past, what you would find is that the practice of church discipline in the United States, uh, in the church of the United States, and in, even around the world, wherever the church has existed, has been a commonly practiced thing inside of the Christian church. And again, as I said, it wasn't probably until the last hundred years in America that it has become an abandoned practice, and much to the shame of the Christian church. 
Because what we're going to find this morning is what Jesus has given us here is such an essential and key part of what it means to be a healthy church and what it means to really be a church that is being obedient to the Scripture. Now, you could have a church that is doing everything else right. They're preaching the gospel. They're loving people. They're proclaiming the truth. They're singing things that, that glorify God's name. They're going out and evangelizing, and they're doing all of those things. But if that church is neglecting church discipline, they're missing a key part of what it truly means to be a church that is obedient to the Bible and to the Scriptures. So what we find here in this passage, I want you to first notice the problem. And the problem is found there at the very beginning of verse 15. If your brother sins. Now, some translations will say if your brother sins against you. But really, it's the idea of just watching out and caring for one another. So it's, it's not just the fact of someone sinning against you personally, but that we're to watch out for our brothers and sisters in Christ and watch their lives. Not, not in, a, in a hateful kind of way, not in a, a condescending type of way, not in a way of saying, well, I'm going to watch everybody and hopefully I can catch somebody in sin and then I can go to them and point out that sin to them. No, it's just a careful desire. Much as a parent watches over their child in a situation and makes sure that they don't get hurt, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to watch out for one another. Because sometimes, brothers and sisters, we talked about this idea, Pastor Ben did, of stumbling blocks, of how easy sometimes it is to get carried off into something, sometimes before we even realize what is happening to us. And so it's for our brothers and sisters in Christ to be watching our lives so that if they begin to see us doing something, saying something, living a certain way, believing a certain idea that is dangerous to us, that is sinful to us, that they're to come to us and to talk to us about it. It, this, it just really expounds upon the idea of why church membership and attending church is so important. There's a reason why the Scripture tells us to not forsake together the gathering of the assembly. It's because we can't live life together if we don't ever see one another. And we can't watch out for one another if we're never here with one another. Can you be a Christian and not go to church, as has as, as been said before? Yes, but you're a disobedient Christian. You're going to be a sick Christian. You're going to be a weak Christian. The gathering together of the church is essential, not only for our spiritual well-being uh, as individuals, but for the spiritual well-being of all of us. So there's a problem that has happened here, Jesus says, that your brother sins. Now listen, there's a reality that we need to understand. This is going to happen. None of us in this room this morning are perfect people. As you look around this room, we are all sinful people. And because we're sinful people, that means we're going to sin. We're going to sin against one another. We're going to sin against people that we love. And this passage is helping us to understand then how we are to respond when that happens. How do we respond when somebody sins against us as an individual? How are we to respond when somebody sins in such a way that is grievous or offensive even to the body of Christ here as the church? Now, notice in this problem that Jesus gives us a clarification because he says, if your brother sins. Now, Jesus is not talking about your blood and flesh brother. He's talking about someone who is a fellow believer in Christ. So he's telling us this is how Christians are to respond to one another. Your brother in Christ sins against you. Your sister in Christ sins against you. Because, listen, we are to act differently than the world does when it comes to such matters. We're not to respond the way that the world does. And we're going to find this again later on. But we all know right now in this room that if we're out in the world and somebody sins against somebody else, how do they respond? Usually they respond in anger, right? You might even see a fight break out. 
Uh, or you'll see somebody begin to talk bad about someone and then just go on and on and on. And so what Jesus is saying is like inside of the body of Christ, there should be an entirely different response on how we deal, deal with things when sin occurs. How we deal with something when somebody has hurt our feelings or sinned against us, said something to us, done something to us, and we are offended. So there's a problem that happens. A brother or sister in Christ has sinned against us or against the body of Christ. Now, where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning is in the process that Jesus gives here. We have the problem, and now we have the process. And so what we find really here is a, is a four-part process of how we deal with such matters. And it's, it's not, in fact, that every situation will require the entirety of this four-part process. In fact, our hope is that only the first part is ever necessary. Our hope is that the first part would be the only time that we would ever have to do any of this four-part process before we would see reconciliation occur. And what we understand here is that Jesus places a large amount of responsibility not upon the person who sinned, but on the person who was sinned against. And again, this is contrary to how most people in the world would view such matters. Most people in the world would say, well, if somebody has sinned against me, it's up to them to come to me and ask for my forgiveness. It's up to them to come to me and to make these matters right. But Jesus, in fact, says that the one who has been sinned against here is the one who is to initiate such matters. Notice what it says there in verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus is all about reconciliation. His life exists to reconcile us back to God. And everywhere we see Jesus going, he's, he's preaching this ministry of reconciliation. And so now here in this text, he's teaching us as human beings how to be reconciled one to another. Remember what Paul said in Galatians? He says, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore him. And such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. We are never as Christians to allow such matters to drive wedges in between us and another brother or sister in Christ. We are always to have this spirit of gentleness, this spirit of reconciliation, this desire to see things restored as if they should be. William Barclay said this, If anyone sins against you, spare no effort to make that man admit his fault and get things right between you and him. We must never tolerate any situation in which there is a breach of personal relationships between us and another member of the Christian community. Now think about that. He says, make no, spare no effort to get this thing resolved. We must never tolerate any situation where there's a breach of personal relationships between us and another member of the Christian community. How often do you think that happens in most churches today? Sadly to say that that's not usually the fact. In fact, I would say you could go to many churches today and there is known sin inside the church where two people are angry with one another and perhaps it's been going on for a month. Sometimes perhaps it's been going on for decades and it's never been dealt with because nobody wants to ask the hard questions. 
Because nobody wants to do what Jesus says here. Because, brothers and sisters, let's understand, and we know this from experience, that what we find here in this passage is not an easy thing to do. It's, in fact, a very difficult thing to do. Perhaps one of the most difficult things that Jesus has ever commanded anyone to do is what we find here in this passage. But there's a process, he says. He says, go and show him his fault in private. So the first thing that Jesus says, if someone has sinned against us, if someone has sinned against the church of Christ, then we're to go and offer a private rebuke. So the first response is to go as quickly as possible. Go to that person who sinned against us and confront them about the sin. Now, the understanding here is this should be done as quickly as possible for two reasons. Number one, that the person who has sinned will not become more hardened in their sin, but also so that the person who has sinned against will not fall into sin as well. You say, well, how would that happen? Well, the person who has sinned, the longer it goes on, the more they're going to convince themselves that what they did was right, even if it was not right. If they're never challenged about the sinfulness of what they did, time changes the way that we view things. And so that person is going to become more and more convinced that what they did was totally right, they have done nothing wrong, but also for the person who was sinned against. For us, bitterness and resentment can begin to creep in. And if we're not careful, we can allow that bitterness and resentment about that sin to turn into sin in our own life. So this is the reason Jesus, that word go there means immediately to go, to deal with the sin, to cut it off, to make sure that it's dealt with. Now this private rebuke, showing this private rebuke is is to speak openly and honestly about the offense. Now you're not to do it in anger, you're not to do it in a vindictive spirit, but you do it in a spirit of humility and gentleness, but you are to go and to deal with it. And notice what Jesus says there, he says to go, it speaks of the idea of immediacy, but if you're going to go and do something, what does that mean? It means you're going to do it in person. Jesus here is not saying that you contact this person via a letter. You don't sit down and write out a letter to this person and say, Dear so-and-so, here's how you hurt me. Dear so-and-so, here's how you sinned against me. He's not even to do it in a phone call. And brothers and sisters, it's not even to do it in a text message. Let's be honest, we live in a world today where even if we don't realize it, we have been ingrained to avoid face-to-face conversations, especially about difficult issues. It's easier, right, if something happened just to pick up our phone and type out a text message and send it, because then we don't have to have the difficulty of seeing someone face-to-face. But I think every one of us in this room could raise our hands and agree that we've had a situation where we've sent a text message that we meant to convey one message, but the person who read it took it in an entirely different way. That's because there's no way in a letter, in a phone call, or in a text message to convey true emotion where everybody can understand exactly what's being said. One commentator said the spoken word can often settle a difference where the written word would only have exacerbated the situation. So Jesus says that we go to this person face to face to deal with the situation. We go to this person face to face as the very first thing that we do, not the second, not the third. You don't first, once you're sinned against, get on Facebook and post a vague reference about what's going on, right? Somebody I know did something really, really bad to me today, and it upset me. 
Don't you hate that? I hate vague, pointed jabs at people that you see on Facebook and other social media. But it happens all the time. And why? Because, listen, as, as sinful people, this, this really speaks to the idea of what Jesus is talking about here. Because when we're sinned against, we're hurt. And when we're hurt, we seek validation to know that we're hurt. And so we begin to put that out there because we want other people to give us pity and grief to tell us about how bad it is that we were sinned against. And what we will find is that we're soon led into that same path of sin that the person who sinned against us was in to begin with. So Jesus says, but first, before anything else, before you do anything, before you talk to your friends, before you talk to anyone else, you go first to that person and you talk to them about that sin. Albert Barnes gives three reasons that we should go to that person alone and we should go to that person first. He said, number one, that he may have an opportunity of explaining his conduct. Because this is really where it all lines up, right? Brothers and sisters, there are times where we feel sinned against and it may just be a total misunderstanding. And we go and we sit down with that person and he explains to us or they explain to us what they did and we realize that both of us were just completely misunderstanding about the situation. Maybe we didn't get the full details about everything that would happen. But we will never know that if we don't go to that person face to face and sit down and talk about it. Number two, he said that he may have an opportunity of acknowledging his offense or making a reparation if he has done wrong. It may be that that person who sinned against us realizes that they've sinned. Or when we go to them and we talk to them, all of a sudden they realize, well, I didn't mean it that way. I did not understand what I was saying, what I was doing, or that it was hurtful to you. I'm sorry. Let's make these things right. And thirdly, that we may admonish them to their error if they have done an injury to the cause of religion. Brothers and sisters, sometimes it may not be a sin against us personally. But if there's a brother and sister in Christ who is doing something that we know to be a sin, grievous to their own lives and grievous to the body of Christ, it is our duty to go to them and to confront them about that sin. Because it matters spiritually. It matters spiritually for the church, but more importantly, it matters spiritually for them because if they're in unconfessed, unrepentant sin, they're in danger before a holy God. And so God has given us this responsibility to do this. And the hope is that in this private conversation, that the person will see the error of their ways. They'll be convinced of their sin, and they'll respond in asking for forgiveness, not only from us, but most importantly, from God. This is why Jesus says that you go and show him his fault in private. Look, and if he listens to you, you have won your brother. What that means is that the relationship has been restored. The word one that is used here is, is the idea of gained or preserved or saved. We have preserved or restored to the truth of the Christian faith, reconciled as a brother of Christ. And let me, let me make this clear this morning, that if we're in this situation and we've been sinned against, we go to that person, we confront them about it, they confess it, they ask for our forgiveness, the matter is done. We don't then... Go start telling everybody about what happened. We don't then go spreading the news to everyone we can about how this brother sinned against us, and then I had to go talk to them, and then they finally, then they finally agreed that what they had done was wrong, and I forgave them. No. The reason that this whole matter occurs in private is because it should stay private. If at this very beginning of this moment, if this brother or sister confesses their sin, and they ask for forgiveness, the matter is done and never to be brought up again. Unfortunately, though, 
Sometimes it doesn't work that way. Sometimes that brother or sister that we go to does not confess, does not repent, does not acknowledge their sin. And so we move here from this private rebuke to a coordinated confrontation. Look again at verse 16. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. This step is drawn from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, which says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. And even in the day when Jesus lived, the idea was that for a matter to be fully authenticated, uh, two or three witnesses were necessary for the confirmation of this fact. Again, this is why a few weeks ago we talked about why Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him up on the mountain. Uh, It was because it was that certifiable witness of three people being there to witness a situation to confirm it. So now what happens here, if you're the one who has been sinned against and you go to this person in private and you plead with them and they refuse to repent, you're then to go get two or three more people and take those people with you. So you go get people that you respect or that that person respects. It could be a pastor. It could be a close friend. It it could be a family member. You want to pick somebody you know that the person who you're talking to is going to respect and listen to. Well, again, because the entire desire of this whole process is reconciliation from the very beginning. From the very first step all the way to the end step, the whole entire desire is to bring reconciliation to the situation. So you hope that by going and with a group of people, two or three witnesses, that this matter would be resolved. There was a rabbinical saying that said, Judge not alone, for none may judge alone save one, and that is God. So the purpose of these three witnesses going along is, number one, that they can bear validity to the situation that you have already gone and addressed it in private. Number two, that they can hear both sides of the story and confirm that the person who is being challenged with sin is indeed in sin. And then finally, the three are there to go because if the matter has to move to the next step, that they are witnesses to the fact that the second step has occurred. Because Jesus is very clear here that you don't skip from step one to step four. You don't start at step four. You start at step one. And then you go to step two, and then step three, and then step four, with the whole entire desire again being the matter of reconciliation. Now again, this is challenging. Several commentators pointed out that in every step along the way, that we desire to keep these matters as private as possible. Until the point where Jesus says that it is to be made a public matter. So even here with the two or three, if the two or three are called to go and address this situation, they too are to keep the matter private in between themselves. And in this moment, if the person repents and they turn from their sin, then again, the matter is settled and done and never to be brought up again. But sometimes it has to move from this coordinated confrontation to a church exhortation. Look at what it says in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, that is the two or three witnesses, tell it to the church. 
Now, church here, it's interesting. It's a church, the word church is used, only used a couple of times here in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and, and some liberal scholars would point to the fact and say, well, wait a minute, the church didn't exist at this point in time, right? Because it was just Jesus and the disciples. There was no established New Testament church. But here Jesus is giving us guidance and direction on things that are going to be happening in the future. And, and the word church that is used here, the word used in the original language, just speaks to a local gathered assembly. So Jesus is, is speaking into the future about the idea of the gathered assembly of the body of Christ. Now, this step in the process is difficult, but necessary. And in fact, one commentator said, concerned discipline is not antithetical to the nature of the church, but proper to it. This is what it looks like to be a church that is concerned about the truth of the gospel. Because let's be honest with ourselves this morning, a church that is not serious about sin is not serious about the gospel of Jesus. Now we can stand around and point our fingers all day long at people outside the church living in lifestyles that are rebellious and disobedient to God, but if we're not willing to deal with the sin in our own lives, what did Jesus say? Remove the log that is in your own eye and then you'll be able to see the speck that is in your brother's eye. A church that is filled with unconfessed sin, a church that is filled with undealt with sin, is not serious about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says that if this person refuses to listen to you, they refuse to listen to two or three witnesses, then it then goes before the church. And what this means is that in the gathered assembly, the members of that church are to hear from the person who's been offended, from the two or three witnesses, from the leadership of the church, about the sin that has occurred in this situation. Whether it's a sin against one against a brother and sister of Christ or a sin that somebody has committed that is grievous to the body of Christ. Now again, this is not a desire to embarrass the person. This is not a desire to, to, to lord power over this person. This is a desire to see this person reconciled with Christ. This is a desire to see this person brought back into truth and back into obedience. Because sometimes... Difficult situations call for difficult measures. Sometimes difficult situations mean, listen, if this brother's not going to listen to another brother in Christ, he's not going to listen to two or three witnesses, surely to goodness he'll listen, she'll listen to the entirety of the church of Jesus Christ whom they've claimed to be a member of. That when the whole body of Christ says, brother, you are in sin and you need to repent. That, that's a strong word. That's a strong testimony. That's a strong exhortation from the body of Christ to say, Brother, listen, we are all in agreement on this matter, but what you have done is wrong. You may not think it's wrong. You may think that what you did was okay, but we're all here to tell you today that by the authority that God has given us, by studying His Word, we're telling you as the body of Christ that what you have done is wrong and you need to repent. It's difficult. It's challenging but it's necessary for the health of God's church. And we must do it. We see not only this exhortation, but then there's a further step. This is the final step of what Jesus gives us here. And this is a public demonstration. So we've confronted them in private. We've confronted them with two or three witnesses. We've confronted them with the entirety of the church. And Jesus says there at the end of verse 17, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
Now, every step in this process has been difficult. But here we probably find the most difficult part of the entire process. It's difficult to confront somebody face to face. It's difficult to confront somebody with a group. It's difficult for the church to make these kinds of authoritative stands against sin. But Jesus says if this person, after the first three steps have been completed, this person refuses to acknowledge their sin and to repent, Jesus says that we are to remove them from the fellowship of the body of Christ. Now, this is given to us clearly in several places in Scripture. I want to read those today. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is speaking about what was happening at the church of Corinth, and he said, In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul said, I'm, I'm going to turn this person over and allow them to pursue their way so that hopefully in the end they'll repent and put themselves back in faith with Christ. Again, Paul writing in 1 Timothy says, Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan, so they will be taught not to blaspheme. Then again, Paul in 2 Corinthians, he says, This is the third time in coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Since you are seeking for proof that Christ who speaks in me is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. When Jesus says that, these people to be as Gentiles and tax collectors. Let's understand that in the context of what that means. Gentiles and tax collectors were outsiders. In other words, they were outside the family of faith. They were no longer members of the church. They were, not, they were never part of the church. So Jesus says, somebody who stays so obstinate and hardened in their sin that they refuse the confrontation of an individual, the confrontation of witnesses, the confrontation of the entire church, he says that person has demonstrated that they are not a part of the body of Christ and they are to be removed. They were no longer to be treated as a brother in Christ. They were no longer to be a part of the gathered assembly. They were no longer welcome to the Lord's table. So then how then would she treat them? Now Jesus here, let me be clear this morning, Jesus here is not saying that if someone in this situation this comes to this, is not saying that we cut them off and never talk to them. He's not saying that we have nothing to do with them. Well, how do we know that? Because how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? He didn't cut them off entirely, but he treated them as they were, outsiders of the faith. Now, he desired to love them, to show them compassion, and to convey truth to them. So this is exactly what Jesus is helping us to understand. If someone comes to this situation where it's the church's decision that now they must be treated as a Gentile tax collector, they're no longer a member of the gathered assembly, they are not welcome to come to the Lord's table, they're not part of the business and the matters of the church, now that person can still come to church. Right? We want that. We would desire that for them. We want them to hear the truth. But they're no longer considered a member of the body of Christ. We're no longer considering them as a, as a Christian until we see repentance and fruits of repentance happening in their life. Jesus desired to reconcile Gentiles and tax collectors to God. So whenever a situation of sin is taking to this level of response, the desire is not to prolong the situation but hopefully by such serious and severe action 
to awaken the individual to the serious of their, seriousness of their sin and to draw them to true repentance. The Broadman Bible Commentary said this paragraph teaches us that each disciple is responsible for his brother, that the whole church is responsible for each member, and that each member is answerable to the church. We find here this understanding of why this practice is, is so avoided in so many places. Because in the 21st century church, people view membership of a church as a right and not a privilege. None of us in this room have the right of church membership. We have the privilege of church membership that's granted to us by God and granted to us by the gathered assembly because they see the testimony of God in our lives. In order to become a member of Barberville Baptist Church, you have to profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have to be baptized, and there has to be a testimony of your observed life that bears witness of your professed faith. And if those things are not existent, then you're not a member of the church. Because it's a privilege that is given. It's not a right. You don't demand church membership. That shouldn't happen anywhere. But for so many people, the idea of church membership is something that is a right that they, they deserve. And so the idea of the church ever speaking to them about the sin in their life is just totally foreign to them. Most people would say, well, the church has no business to tell me what I do with my personal life. But in fact, the scripture tells us the church has every business to tell you what you do in your personal life and how you should live your personal life. Because we love one another. Brothers and sisters, those of you who have children, how many of you would sit on the couch and watch your child run over to the stove, turn the eye on, let it heat up, and then just lay their hand on the, on the stove and never do anything? If you're a loving parent, you would never do that. And if we're loving Christians, we will never sit idly by and watch a brother and sister in Christ throw their entire life away in sin. We will never allow that to happen. Just as if your child was doing that, the very first thing you would do when you'd see them head to the stove is you'd say, ah, 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 no, don't do that. And if they didn't, what would you do? You'd jump up off the couch and you'd run over there and you'd grab them away. And no matter how hard they fought you, you would pull them back away from that. And this is exactly what Jesus is telling us to do here. That we go to that brother and say, listen, brother, you sinned against me. You've sinned against the church. We need to deal with this. And oh, no, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Okay, I'm going to bring two or three more people. Brother, you've sinned. You're in danger before God. You need to repent. I don't care. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Brother, we're going to bring you before the church. The church is saying you have sinned. We're going to do everything we can to keep our brothers and sisters in Christ from falling into offense, from falling into temptation, from falling into sin. Now notice the next thing that we see here in this passage is not only the problem, we've seen the process that Jesus gives us, this four-part step, but now I want you to notice the power that Jesus says is here in this situation. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now that passage should sound very familiar to you because we've just seen it just a few chapters earlier in chapter 16. When Jesus was speaking to Peter, 
Right after Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, he said, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And we talked about, when we looked at that passage, the idea that Jesus was giving the apostles and the leadership of the church the authority to say what is right according to Scripture and what is wrong according to Scripture, what is good doctrine and what is not good doctrine. And so what we find here is that Jesus is speaking in such a way as the source of his power that he has given to us, that he is confirming the practices of the church in the midst of church discipline. So the idea of binding and loosing relates here as the church moves forward with this process of discipline. What Jesus is saying is whatever decision is made by the church, if the church makes the decision that this brother has repented and they're to be welcomed back into fellowship, then that thing has been loosed and has been granted and, and heaven agrees with that decision. If the church makes the decision to exclude someone from the church because they have refused to repent, then Jesus says that decision is validated by God the Father in heaven. Now, this is all dependent, of course, that the process has been followed. Jesus is not saying that you can just do this however you want, and that God the Father is okay with it. He's saying, if you have followed this process step by step and done everything that I've commanded you to do, then you can have this confirmation in hand that I am with you in this matter, that I am confirming this and agreeing with this. Now, brothers and sisters, this is an encouraging thing for us because the matter of church discipline is a difficult matter. It's a challenging matter, not only for your leadership as elders, but for the entire body of Christ. It's a grievous thing. It's a, it's, it's a, 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 a heart-wrenching matter to have to do something like this that would go to this point. But we have this promise that Jesus says that what you decide to do, if it's done according to the Word of God, is confirmed in heaven, and the authority is given there by that. H.A. Ironsides, in his commentary on this passage, said, Whatever Christ's people, assembled in their organized congregation or church, may decide is ratified in heaven. Isn't that a wonderful promise that God has given to His church? That if we obey His Word by His commands, that the things we've done here are not just our opinion, not just our thought, but are His thoughts and His decisions operating through us. The final thing I want you to notice here in this text, verses 19 and 20, is the prayer. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. This is perhaps one of the most misused and misapplied and misquoted texts in the Bible. You'll hear um, this uh, this scripture used oftentimes when there's a disappointing turnout to a prayer meeting, right? You're expecting a bunch of people to show up and only three people show up and they say, well, you know, we can't be discouraged tonight, brethren. The scripture says wherever two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. That's not what this text is talking about. Because the scripture tells us that Jesus is with us wherever, God's spirit is with us wherever we go. We don't have to have two or three for God's spirit to show up. You can be here in this sanctuary, you can be at your home, you can be at your car by yourself, and God's Spirit is with you. So if that's the case, what is Jesus talking about here? What is He saying? If two or three of you agree on anything, or if two or three have gathered together in my name, I'm there in their midst. 
Well, this is where we emphasize the idea of context, context, context. Jesus is not jumping from the idea of church discipline all the way over to another subject. We're still on the matter of church discipline. And so Jesus is saying, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Two of you. So it's speaking to the idea of the one, the witnesses, the gathered assembly, who agree on this matter. They agree on this matter of church discipline, agree on this matter of this person, of what they've done, and asking and pleading to God for these things to take place, that reconciliation would occur, and if necessary, that God would take that person who's in sin and drive them to the point of desiring to come back to him. This is what Paul was saying when he says, I've turned them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. He's saying, God, my desire for them is that you would do whatever is necessary in their life to bring them back to you. And sometimes that is what we need to pray for people. Sometimes we need to pray that God would say, take them to their very bottom point of their lives, that they have no other way to look but to you. No other place to go but to put their trust in you. And Jesus says, if you do this, that it shall be done. Now, this doesn't mean that we can just agree on anything selfishly. This passage has to be viewed by the context of what Jesus is talking about here. And notice what he says there. He says, forever two or three are gathered together in my name. I am there in their midst. This is a continued promise that in the difficult matter of church discipline, that Christ will be with us with his divine help and presence. That if we are gathered together for such a matter, for such a difficult decision, that he will be here with his spirit to help us in that moment. In fact, we, we see a parallel to this in Acts chapter 15, verse 28, where the Jerusalem council made a decision And the writer of Acts identifies that decision that they made as one that was authoritated or identified actually as a work of the Holy Spirit. For it says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. You can quote H.A. Ironsides again. He says, he is there to give authority to their action as a church by making it his action and to give efficiency to their petitions by adopting them as their own. So Jesus is saying that when these matters of discipline are taken forth by the church, these are my actions. It's not just the action of the individual, not just the action of the witnesses, not just the action of the church, but it is my action as well. I am doing these things in the midst of you. As we close this morning... I want you to think about this. What we see in this passage very clearly is that conduct matters. We have to, as a church, deal with sin. Sin cannot be overlooked. It cannot be swept away. It cannot be covered up. Sin must be dealt with. And we see in this that this process of restoration and discipline is to be kept as private as possible. That means that in the very beginning stages, if it's just between you and that brother in Christ, that it stays private. And again, as we've emphasized the entire way that the purpose of these steps is restoration. We're not doing this to get vengeance. We're not doing this to get revenge. We're doing this to restore a brother or sister to Christ. I wanted to close this morning with a powerful quote from William Hendrickson. 
Now listen to this. He says, lack of discipline is a curse to any church. It is the privilege and duty of the church to set forth these principles and to demand that its members strive with the help of God's Spirit to apply them to their everyday living and thinking. Its neglect means the ultimate destruction of the church as a powerful means of spreading the light of the gospel among its members and among the unsaved. When the church is not serious about dealing with sin, we have lost our authority to speak upon the truth of the gospel. When the church is not serious about sin, we have lost our testimony in a world that is dying and is looking to see what's different about the church than the world. Brothers, may God, and brothers and sisters, by God's grace, may we be serious about sin in our own lives and in the lives of those whom we care about. May we be willing to make the difficult decisions to go to someone and to confront them about their sin. May we be willing to make the difficult decisions to say, I'm going to do what God has called me to do, even if it's hard, even if it's challenging, because I love each and every one of you too much not to do it. Let's care for one another as we're obedient to His Word. Father, this morning, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the instruction we find here. And Father, what a challenging text this is. Lord, we admit the challenges that are found here because, Father, we are people that most often do not desire confrontation. We don't desire Father, to have to deal with things. We, we oftentimes would rather just let things move on and just forget about it and try to move past it. But Lord, your word tells us that we need to deal with sin. And we need to do it in a personal way. We need to do it in a private way. And we need to do it quickly. So Father, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here that as this message was preached this morning, they realize that there's someone that they need to go to, that they'll do that today. They'll do it quickly. They'll do it privately. They'll do it with a spirit of reconciliation. But Father, that they'll take care of that matter in obedience to Your Word. Lord, help us to evaluate our own hearts, our own sinfulness, that Father, we may not be caught up into temptation. Let us be quickly to recognize sin, quickly to repent of sin, and quickly to turn from sin that we may live our lives in obedience to you. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.